everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my brother and producer, Joel, here in the studio with me. And today is an especially good day because we finally, after months and multiple signs coming broken, we finally have the new Lights Out Podcast sign here in the studio. And I am just blown away by it. I know it is so cool looking. Completely changed the entire vibe in here and really brought it to where I I foresaw this show going. And it's just, it's a sight to see. So if you're listening and you've never checked us out on YouTube, this is the the episode to do it because you got to check out the sign. Let us know what you guys think about it. But I think it just totally sets the whole mood for the show. Plus, Joel is now joining me here at the table as opposed to being kind of in the back of the studio which will just make things even easier. So I'm very excited with how all this is looking, that's for sure. But today, we are going to be diving back into the occult. And this is something that we have talked about briefly on multiple episodes, but specifically the only real episodes that we've really tackled a topic or you know, something involving the occult was when we covered Anton LaVey, and the church of satan which you know a lot of people would say you know that's not really a part of the cult but a lot of people do consider it to be a part of you know the occult uh, under the occult umbrella i guess you could say so today's episode we're going to be covering a very very interesting man probably one of the most intriguing and just crazy life stories i've i've ever heard before and that is alistair crowley the great beast 666 This guy is probably one of the most interesting humans I think that's ever lived and truly a master of the occult. And for those that are not really familiar with the occult, don't you worry. I'm going to give you a little intro to the occult and exactly what that means because I feel like there's so many people out there that don't really understand what the occult actually means. And they just automatically assume that the occult is something dark, something evil, and that's not always the case. But we'll get into all that here in a second. I wanted to also say we do still have some Lights Out merch out there. Still available for sale. So if you guys haven't checked out milehighmerch.com yet and checked out what we have for Lights Out, definitely go do that because once we run out, we're not going to be restocking any of these designs and we're going to be doing a whole new drop, hopefully probably at the beginning of next year. But definitely check out Mile High Merch if you haven't already. And also this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Simply Safe Every Plate and Plush Care. But without further ado, let us dive into what the occult is all about. Because I think it's important to understand what the occult is before we really dive into who Aleister Crowley was. So very simply, the word occult literally means hidden. Astronomers actually use the word occult to describe what happens when an object, such as the moon or Venus, crosses in front of another object in the sky. It's literally what it means. Occult just means hidden. So many people hear a cult and they run for the hills because they think it's something super evil, super scary. But that's not always the case. In decades past, the word occult dealt with anything that was outside of natural thinking. It was a generic term that incorporated almost everything we now view to be part of the non-traditional spiritual frontier. Many occultists Within the Western occult tradition fall practices involving aspects of multiple paths. Okay, there's multiple paths to the occult. Again, it's a very, very generic term or general term, I should say. 
which makes generalizing the occult just as a whole extremely difficult. And it's why it's more beneficial to break it down and describe individual occult paths. Hidden paths is really what it means. So some of these paths include, but are not limited to, Hermeticism, Kabbalah, Gnosticism, Alchemy, Astrology, Numerology, Wicca, Divination, Mysticism, Satanism, and the one that we're going to talk about today, Thelema. So literally, if you are interested in any of those different paths, maybe you're into astrology. I believe in astrology. I know a lot of people think it's bullshit, but I have seen time and time again, especially for myself, that astrology explains a lot of different things very accurately. I mean, I think Joel would agree with that probably. Oh yeah, definitely. I believe in astrology and I mean, it's just such a complex system that in my mind, I don't like to question a whole lot because to me, it does make a lot of sense. And I know you got the your birth chart as well, but when I saw mine and how specific it got into so many different areas about my life that perhaps, you know, with the universe and all these other things that go into that just kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, you know, and when it talks more about like your personality and who you are, I was like, dang, I actually do agree with pretty most spot of on. this stuff. It's yeah. pretty spot on. I mean, it's not for all people. Some people, it's not exactly right, but usually there's always some aspect of astrology that makes sense for somebody. And I mean, astrology is just one of those things. Maybe, you know, numerology, maybe you're into divination. I mean, if you're into crystals and energy healing, Reiki, anything like that. I mean, all these different esoteric and metaphysical sort of subjects all fall under the occult umbrella uh, pretty much. So if you're interested in any of those things, you have dabbled in the occult. Now, you know, I know we've talked about this a number of, of times about Joel and I's upbringing. We were both grew up in a very Christian home, very traditional, you know, just very strict by the Bible, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it, it definitely closed us off from learning about all these different things because yeah, in the definitely. Bible, I mean, it definitely talks about the occult and different things like that and how you should stay away from this stuff because you don't need it. You only need to focus on God. So we were definitely not introduced to any of this till way later in life. And, you know, I've definitely... I've looked at a number of these different paths, I guess you should say. I mean, I'm not an expert on any of this, that's for sure. But I have gone into some of these subjects and I found a lot of hidden knowledge there. I got to say, I think there's a lot of uh, of truth to a lot of these different things. And I know a lot of people would disagree with me on that. But again, it comes down to, you know, your own personal opinion, your own choice. What do you believe? And, you know, after being raised in a, you know, God, love and Christian home, you know, I wanted to go out and explore the world on my own and try to figure out, you know, what, what is the meaning of all this? What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of death? What, what are we doing here? You know, is there something more to the world that uh, maybe we weren't, you know, previous to before? But like with Alistair Crowley, for example, uh, a lot of his ideas and different things that he derived knowledge from go back to ancient Egypt. And, you know, we'll be talking a lot about some of the different deities from ancient Egypt and uh, some of the magic that uh, was basically this information was passed down from thousands of years ago. And it's now, you know, been brought into sort of the modern age by people like Aleister Crowley. And there's many others out there who are kind of keeping the occult subjects going on, you know, and passing them down and, and 
as we learn more and more about these different things. So I find it very interesting and I'm sure if you've never heard of Alistair Crowley, you're going to be extremely just blown away by this guy's story. Some call him the most wickedest man in the world. I, I think he's very misunderstood. Do I agree with everything he does? No, but I do find it very interesting to cover. So hopefully that gives you just a little bit of an idea of what the occult is. It's basically hidden knowledge. That's all you really need to know. And then there's so many different paths. There's so many different things that fall under this umbrella. And, you know, some people think there's negative things that go on here and there definitely could be negative things that go on in some of these different paths. But I think it's something that everybody should explore on their own and make up your own decision about because it's all very interesting and it's all, uh, I think it's just something that you have to interpret yourself to, to truly find out if it's something that makes sense for you. But with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the absolutely bizarre story of the man himself, the great B666, Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley was actually born Edward Alexander Crowley on October 12th, 1875 in Warwickshire, England. And his parents, Edward Crowley and Emily Bertha Bishop, were married in November 1874. Earlier in life, Edward had worked as an engineer. By the time he had settled down to start a family, he had retired to live off his share of his family's brewery, Crowley's Alton Ales. Edward and Emily were both devout evangelical Christians belonging to the exclusive brethren. Edward even worked from time to time as a traveling preacher. They also had a second child, which was a baby girl, but she died in 1880. And for the sake of confusion, I'm just going to call him Alistair throughout this whole thing. But Alistair is actually a name that he adopted later on in life. But we all know him as Alistair Crowley, so that is what I will call him. But Alistair absolutely adored his father, and he actually wanted to be a preacher just like him, and actually called him my hero and my friend. They sent Alistair to an evangelical Christian boarding school as a young child, and then on to prep school. But he did not fit in and was bullied constantly. The prep school was in Cambridge and run by Reverend Henry Darcy Champney. His father died of tongue cancer when Alistair was just 11 years old. And as you can imagine, this absolutely devastated him. And it was at that point in his life that he started to question and ultimately reject his faith. He'd be quoted as saying, One would go mad if one took the Bible seriously. But to take it seriously, one must already be mad. While at prep school, Alistair developed and was diagnosed ultimately with a serious medical condition that affected his kidneys. And because of it, his mother pulled him out of school. The doctor said he may only have a few months to live. So Alistair's uncle offered to let him come stay with him in the country where there was some fresh air. Alistair thrived with his uncle. He was allowed to play outside and started mountain climbing. And until that point, Alistair had only known a strict religious upbringing, and this was his first taste of a carefree life. His uncle was super rad. He let him drink alcohol, even paid for sex workers for the young boy. He lost his virginity when he was just 14 years old, fueling his future fascination with sexual desire and sadomasochism. Once he was fully recovered, he was sent back to live with his mother. Her once obedient son was now rebellious and very difficult to be around. And because of this, she called him the beast. Emily didn't mean this as a compliment, but Alistair absolutely did not mind. And he embraced this new nickname he was given. He ended up attending multiple schools, 
but never made it past a few terms. When he did return to school, Reverend Chapney couldn't control him. Alistair thought he was a sadist, and he seemed to have no interest in following his rules. He was set on rebelling against any religious or societal norms presented to him. To rebel against his mother, he had sex with a maid on her bed. The maid's reputation was ruined and she couldn't find work because of it. And she ultimately became a sex worker. And many believe that she may have even been Jack the Ripper's first victim. Later on in life, Alistair actually claimed that he knew Jack the Ripper personally. Alistair was controlling and arrogant and he didn't hesitate to start a fight with anyone who questioned him. He felt like he had superior intelligence, wit, and charisma, which helped him take control when he wanted to. And when those things didn't work, he became aggressive, ruthless even, resorting to physical violence and emotional manipulation when he needed to. Alistair was protected by his wealth and status and rarely saw any consequences for his poor behavior, some thought. At this point in his life, he was absolutely tired of Christianity. He argued with his teachers about hypocrisy and inconsistencies in the Bible and about morality. He was quoted as saying, ordinary morality is only for ordinary people. He continued to go against Christian morals by smoking and masturbating. And he even hired sex workers and at one point even contracted gonorrhea. Alistair continued to pursue his own interests. He took chemistry courses at Eastburn College and started playing chess and writing poetry. He was very interested in mountain climbing, successfully completing several difficult climbs and joining the Scottish Mountaineering Club. And he continued these interests while attending Trinity College, where he started with a focus on philosophy, but then soon switched to English literature. He also became the president of the chess club and had poems published in student publications. He also kept on mountain climbing. He took a yearly trip to the Alps with his friend Oscar Eckenstein and became well-known after a solo climb in 1897 of Monk Mountain, almost 14,000 feet high in Switzerland. When he wasn't mountain climbing, he was having a lot of sex, especially with sex workers. At one point, he even contracted syphilis from one of them. When he started at Trinity College, it was 1895, and this was also around the time they actually changed his name from Edward to Alistair, because he wanted a name that people would remember because he was pretty set on becoming famous. So Alistair is a lot more unique. I've never met an Alistair before, have you? No way. So, I mean, it it really worked, honestly. Yeah, very unique. His mother had actually called him Alec growing up. So he hated that name, and he obviously hated the name Edward, or any of its variations like Ed, Ted, or Ned. And Alexander seemed too long, and he didn't like the nickname Sandy. So he decided to go with its Gaelic form, Alistair. The following year in 1896, Alistair was in Stockholm when he had his first sexual encounter with a man. This was illegal at the time, but Alistair believed it was a transcendent experience that helped him realize he was bisexual. A year later, he started a relationship with Herbert Charles Jerome Pullett. Herbert was the president of Cambridge University's Footlights Dramatic Club. Alistair fell madly in love with Herbert who had a secret identity as a drag queen named Diane de Rougie. He also became increasingly obsessed with Western traditions and philosophies that clashed with Christianity. These interests led to his breakup with Herbert, something Alistair always regretted. After a trip to Russia in 1897, Alistair got very sick for a short time, but it was long enough for him to become fascinated by mortality 
and the futility of all human endeavor. This fascination led him to devote himself completely to the occult, which again, the occult is just a broad term that can refer to the beliefs and practices of the supernatural, mysticism, and magic. Some of the occult is based on spirituality and religious practices, while other concepts like psychics and ESP are not based on any religion. Alistair started reading up on the subject and started studying books like The Book of Black Magic and of Pax by scholarly mystic and poet A.E. Waite. He also continued to publish poetry, including a collection of erotic poems that was banned in Britain. In 1898, he left school without earning any degrees. Too much sex, I guess. With his inheritance, he lived how he had always wanted to live, free to do whatever he pleased. So, he had more sex, hiring sex workers almost every day, and grew even more obsessed with magic and the occult. He then traveled to Switzerland, where he met Julianne Baker, a chemist with an interest in alchemy. Alistair and Julian traveled back to England, and Julian introduced his new friend to his brother-in-law, George Cecil Jones. George and Julian were members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a secret organization of aspiring wizards who studied metaphysics, the paranormal, and the occult, and it was led by a man named Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers. This Order of the Golden Dawn claimed to have translated ancient texts that gave them the ability to perform magic and communicate with angels. At his very first meeting, Alistair was wearing a fake mustache and using a fake Russian accent and introduced himself to the group as Count Vladimir Swarov. He did this in order to protect his reputation and keep his family from learning he was involved in the occult. However, once he learned his identity would be a secret, Alistair joined the Golden Dawn on November 18, 1898, taking the name Freighter Perdurabo. To him, this name meant, I shall endure to the end. The Golden Dawn required members to get in touch with their inner soul before learning magic. They participated in philosophical discussions, yoga and meditation, and dream interpretations to accomplish this. Everyone in the group, regardless of rank, performed spells on a daily basis to summon angels to protect them. Alistair was committed to summoning his personal guardian angel and contacting demons which made it hard for many members to actually trust Alistair. It was clear that he was interested in black magic and pushing the boundaries of what magic could do. They feared that if he rose through the ranks, he could become very dangerous to the group. So this is something that really makes Alistair Crowley evil to a lot of people, is the fact that he believed in black magic. If you know anything about this world you know of the occult, there's a there's a belief that there's white magic and black magic, you know, obviously one being using magic for, you know, your own personal gain or to do harm to others. And then there's white magic that is to do good things and, you know, good vibes, I guess you could say. So Alistair was, you know, not only interested in, in the white magic, but he was very interested in the black magic and what that could do for him. How could that better himself? But when you go dabbling in black magic, you have to be careful because you never know where that road will lead you. Alistair moved into a luxury apartment with plenty of room for his new roommate, a fellow member of the Golden Dawn named Alan Bennett, who served as Alistair's personal instructor. Alan taught Alistair all about ceremonial magic, including the use of drugs during rituals in exchange for free rent. What a good deal. Sounds like he's really knowledgeable if that's the case. Yeah. 
Seriously, must be a, a real wizard. Alan had renounced God as a teenager when he learned how children are created and born. He also believed that the devil could be summoned by saying the Lord's Prayer backwards. I haven't heard that before. That's wild, man. Yeah. I know a lot of people do believe that, you know, certain things like that backwards can do kind of the opposite effect of what, you know, I guess yeah. it kind of in, you know, a logical sense would make sense, but that'd be pretty hard to say the Lord's Prayer backwards. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a serious I'm talent. Right the same there. Thing. That's serious talent. But Alan needed to move to a warmer, drier client for health reasons, but he couldn't afford it. Alistair had vowed to never mix money and friends, but he made an exception for Alan and asked a married woman he was having an affair with to pay for his friend's trip. Alistair would become notorious for turning on his friends and lovers, but he never turned on Alan. They remained lifelong friends. In November of 1899, Alistair bought a mansion in Scotland called Bolskeen House near the shore of Loch Ness. He was attracted to this house because he had heard that before it was built, there was a church on the land. A fire had broken out during a service and burned down the entire church, killing everyone inside. The house was also an ideal layout for Alistair to perform the Abramelin ceremony, a ritual that would invoke the kings of hell, which would allow him to summon his guardian angel. And after moving in, he did this ritual every day with no results. He got so frustrated that he eventually gave up. And some believe that because Alistair started this ceremony but never finished it, he had indeed unlocked the gates of hell. While staying at Bolskine, he embraced Scottish culture and even dressed in traditional clothing. For a while, Alistair continued to study magic and the occult. He also continued to write and publish poems. And eventually, him and his friend Oscar Eckenstein started climbing mountains together again. His travels took him to Mexico City, where he fell in love with the Mexican culture, just as he had with the Scottish culture. And during his travels, he met up with his former instructor, Alan Bennett, in present-day Sri Lanka. Alan had studied Buddhism and then Shaivism, a Hindu tradition, and had decided to become a Buddhist monk. And so he taught Alistair about yoga. Alistair claims that while learning yoga from Alan, that one time he witnessed Alan floating in midair, as if he was just a feather being blown around by a light breeze. After seeing this, he became extremely inspired to continue his journeys, which took him to India. During his tour, though, he actually contracted malaria. And after recovering, he once again started mountain climbing with his friend Oscar. They were joined by several other men, and they planned to be the first to climb K2, the second highest mountain in the world. But during the climb, Alistair's malaria returned this time along with influenza and snow blindness. The group ended up making it to 20,000 feet before returning home. While he was home, he was able to recover, and then he traveled to Paris, where he embraced the arts and became well-known in artistic circles, including with painters, sculptors, and fellow writers. He even met W. Somerset Maugham, who based a character on Alistair in his novel The Magician, published in 1908. In 1903, Alistair married Rose Edith Kelly, sister of his friend Gerald Kelly, a painter. Rose was a widow who was having an affair with a married man and lied to her family about being pregnant to get money from them for an abortion. To try to settle her down, they set up an arranged marriage. Rose married Alistair to get out of the arranged marriage, which obviously pissed her family off. At first, the marriage was a sham, but Alistair fell in love with her on their honeymoon. Unfortunately, though, the passion 
wouldn't last. Alistair was known for falling in love quickly and madly before abruptly losing interest. The couple rented an apartment in Cairo, Egypt, after claiming to be a prince and princess. And it was there that Alistair started studying the Egyptian deities, Islamic mysticism, and Arabic. He actually made a temple room in their home where he would conduct rituals. And during these rituals, Rose would become delirious and pass along cryptic messages from the gods. Messages included, they are waiting for you. The equinox of the gods has come. On March 20th, 1904, during one of these spells, she saw the Egyptian god Horus. At first, Alistair was skeptical. He had been trying for years to summon demons without any luck. So he took her to a museum to show him what she saw. And while they were there, Rose pointed to a monument from the 7th century BCE of none other than the god Horus, which absolutely stunned Alistair. The monument's exhibit number was 666. And in Christianity, this is the number of the beast, or some call the devil's number. This struck Alistair as being very important. And he later referred to the monument as this very revealing moment for him. Rose said Horace had given her instructions on how to communicate, and she told Alistair specific steps of the ritual. And on April 8th, Alistair performed the ritual and started hearing a voice that he believed belonged to his guardian angel, a messenger of Horace named Iwas. And for three days, he documented everything this voice said to him, which resulted in him creating a book called The Book of the Law, which is still out there today. You can go and buy it on Amazon, actually. And this book, this information that he got from Iwas, became the foundation of Alistair's religion and philosophy, Thelema. The Book of the Law had three speakers, according to Alistair, deities who were used to convey the core principles of Thelema. And some of these principles were do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Members of Thelema should follow their true path to find their true will. Another principle was love is the law, love under will. Thelema is based in love, but love is secondary to finding the true path. Every man and every woman is a star. People are like stars, which have a set time and position in space. But they are also individuals who are independent and avoid conflict with other stars. So based on these principles, it really comes down to do what you want. Do what you need to do in life. Don't let anybody dictate who you should be, what you should follow. But do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And in this book of the law, he defined magic. And when he spelled magic, it was M-A-G-I-C-K. And he defined magic as being the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with the will. Thelema is a rare classical Greek word that signifies the appetite of will, desire, sometimes even sexual. In early Christian writings, it's used to refer to free will, which is tested by God and the devil, or to refer to the will of God. A follower of Thelema is known as a Thelemite. And this is defined as someone who does as he pleases. 
It's a person who finds and follows their truest and purest will. The book of the law says, who calls us Thalamites will do no wrong if he look but close into the word. For those are therein three grades, the hermit and the lover and the man of earth, which this all sounds very cryptic, right? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely take some time to wrap your head around some of these principles, but when you understand that it just comes down to basically everybody should be able to act on free will and do as they please. I think it's a lot simpler to understand that way. I mean, you can tell from Malister's life that once he decided that Christianity wasn't for him, that he was going to do what he wanted to do and pursue his interests. That was his free will. I mean, that was his right to do that. And basically his religion is all about doing exactly that. Follow what you will and not, you know, what others tell you to do. Basically, it's like my, my, my version <laughs> of it right there. Makes a lot of sense. But at this point in his life, he hadn't started Thelema, his religious movement, just yet. Iwas had instructed him to steal the monument in the museum and translate the book into every language, as well as secure an island. Obviously, this was overwhelming for Alistair because he's like, God, that's pretty risky. It's going to take some time to do all that. And instead, he sent the book to fellow occultists and then put it away. Eventually, he went back to Scotland, though where Rose had their first child, Lilith, who was born on July 28, 1905. And in order to make money in Scotland, he founded a publishing company and continued to publish his own poetry. But his work wasn't selling too well, as you can probably imagine. And he was having trouble with his personal relationships. Alistair had told his friends at the Golden Dawn about hearing the voice of Iwas, his guardian angel. But when they heard the news, they didn't share his excitement. Because the members of the Golden Dawn were very worried that this guardian angel, Iwas, was actually a demon. Alistair had all the requirements to enter the Second Order, but was being blocked by other members. Because at the end of the day, they just did not like his ideas or his lifestyle. They rejected his bisexuality, his sexual promiscuity, and general lack of morals. He even had a public feud with a fellow member, a poet named W.B. Yeats. Crowley was attracted to black magic, while Yeats stuck to white magic. W.B. Yeats actually convinced the Order not to let him in to the inner circle because of this, which put Alistair at odds with him and even caused him to attack W.B. Yeats. One time he came in shouting magical curses at the poet. And the poet ended up using white magic to make Aleister Crowley fall down the stairs. And this fight between these two is now known as the Battle of Blythe Road. When he was refused at the London Lodge for the Golden Dawn, he went straight to the group's leader, Samuel Mathers, in Paris, who personally initiated him into the Second Order's Adeptus Minor Grade. Samuel ordered Aleister and his mistress Elaine Simpson to seize the London Lodge. So Alistair snuck in and changed the locks, laughing at the other members when they couldn't get in. And when he got caught, he had to go to court. And after going to court, the takeover failed, and Alistair was heavily ostracized. So when things got rough for Alistair, he said, You know what? Back to mountain climbing. <laughs> yep. So he got his team back together and they climbed. Uh, a very tall mountain in the Himalayas of Nepal 
actually the third highest mountain in the world, but is it's actually the most difficult to climb. And I think this is like one of the most interesting things to me about Alistair Crowley is that despite all these other things, you know, that are going on and, you know, controversial things with magic, like he was a badass mountain climber. Like if you've ever seen anybody, you know, film going up these mountains, I'm just oh, like, yeah. this is crazy. Like going up 20,000 feet in the air on foot onto the top of these peaks, you could literally die at any moment up there. Like it, it takes a lot of courage to do that for sure. But during this climb, the other members of the group turned on Alistair, calling him dangerous and not following his commands. Several of them left one night to go back down the mountain and actually ended up dying in an accident, which Alistair was later blamed for. Because allegedly, Alistair was in his tent summoning a demon. <laughs> what? When all of a sudden an avalanche oh my God. killed those climbing back down the mountain. So basically, Alistair, it sounds like, got pissed off that his group was abandoning him. So as they're like going, you know, like, all right, fuck you. We're out of here. We're going to go home. Alistair says, just wait, motherfuckers. Right. Goes into his tent, starts calling on Iwas to do something about this situation. And then a few moments later, a big avalanche. Yeah, that's crazy. That's wild. I mean, is that just coincidence or did Alistair have... An ability to make something like this happen. But after this whole debacle, he was shunned from the mountaineering community. But like, get out of here, dude. So instead, his new hobby was big game hunting. So Alistair went to India and Rose and Lilith joined him. Not long after returning to India, Alistair shot a man he said was trying to mug him. This man lived, but it ultimately forced the Crowleys to leave India for good. All right, let's go ahead and get back into the absolutely fascinating story of Alistair Crowley. It's only going to get crazier and weirder from here. But while I was doing those ads, I just realized that there's probably been a few times during this episode where I have referred to him as Alistair Crowley. And that's because that's just how I've always said him. And I didn't realize I was saying it incorrectly, but it's actually pronounced Crowley. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher so many other names in here, especially these Egyptian deity names. So just bear with me here. Alistair moved the fam to China, where they traveled around quite a bit. And Alistair worked on his magic the entire time, as well as smoking opium, while Rose drank heavily on the regular. Eventually, Rose took Lilith back to England, and Alistair went to visit Elaine Simpson, a fellow member of the Golden Dawn. He had actually sent her a copy of the Book of the Law, and she was anxious to discuss it with him. Together, they perform rituals trying to contact Iwas, the messenger who had recited the Book of the Law to him. After this, though, Alistair continued traveling, going to Japan, Canada, and the U.S. before going back to England. By the time he returned to England, Lilith had actually died, which devastated Alistair, and he blamed Rose for their daughter's death. He believed Rose had neglected Lilith because of her drinking, and the stress of losing his daughter was too much for Alistair to bear. His failing health led to several surgeries, and he claimed his anger toward his wife drove him to have multiple affairs. Through his personal tragedies, Alistair continued to study and work on magic. He had several mistresses that he called his scarlet women, because they were muses for his magic. Even though Alistair was bisexual, 
he seemed to prefer to have sex with women. When he had sex with men, he had a passive role, which fed his masochism. Alistair believed that through his rejection of sexual norms, he could achieve spiritual enlightenment. He was firmly against discrimination based on sexual orientation and believed that both men and women should be able to engage in sexual activity with whomever they pleased. He was quoted as saying, It is a terrible error to let any natural impulse, physical or mental, stagnant. Crush it out, if you will, and be done with it, or fulfill it and get it out of the system. But do not allow it to remain there and putrefy. The suppression of the normal sex instinct, for example, is responsible for a thousand ills. In Puritan countries, one inevitably finds a morbid preoccupation with sex coupled with every form of perversion and degeneracy. Alistair preached that sexual preferences and gratification should never be suppressed. He said that a person must not be ashamed or afraid of being homosexual if he happens to be so at heart. He must not attempt to violate his own true nature because of public opinion or medieval morality or religious prejudice, which would wish he were otherwise. While Alistair thought women's sexuality shouldn't be controlled, he was also against abortion. He believed that if a woman followed her true will, she would never want to have an abortion. Several of his views seemed to be rooted in misogyny, which may have stemmed from his relationship with his mother as well as his upbringing. He had learned that women were second-class citizens and inferior to men, and he echoed these beliefs in his writings. While Alistair believed women were morally inferior to men, he also believed they deserved liberation and could achieve it through his philosophies. He had mixed views on various ethnic groups. He had come from a wealthy Victorian family and was raised in a culture of casual bigotry. Alistair had anti-Semitic views and even used racial slurs against Jewish people, even his close friend Victor Newberg. He believed Chinese people were spiritually superior, and he admired Muslims for their perceived manliness and pride. Despite his mixed beliefs about women and other ethnicities, Alistair didn't consider himself to be liberal or conservative. He rejected democracy and he hated the British aristocracy, even though he referred to himself as an aristocratic communist. Democracy couldn't exist according to the book of the law, which said, There is the master, and there is the slave, the noble and the serf, the lone wolf and the herd. These ideas led him to social Darwinism and the writings of Nietzsche. He was more concerned about spiritual matters than political ones. But he did have a fascination for extreme political ideologies, like Nazism and Communism, because they sought to destroy old traditions and create new ones. Alistair believed that his belief system could replace Christianity, but first Christianity had to be destroyed. In February of 1907, Rose and Alistair's second daughter was born, Lola Zaza. Alistair partnered back up with his friend from the Golden Dawn, George Cecil Jones, and together they performed rituals from the Book of Abramelin, a book of magic in a hotel in London, while using the hash. Alistair believed these rituals helped him reach a state of meditative consciousness, or a meditative trance called samadhi, a kind of extraordinary perception where a person is neither conscious nor unconscious. In addition to reaching samadhi, Alistair believed he could make himself invisible. He would walk down the street in a red robe and golden crown, and he claimed that while doing this, no one passing by him could see him. He wrote an essay called The Psychology of Hashish, to explain how using the drug helped his magic. 
he was really a believer in cannabis, which is really interesting. Obviously, hash. He believed that cannabis allowed you to connect with that spiritual side more and really tap in and enhance your ability to perform magic, which as a cannabis user, I got to say, like there's been many times (laughs) where I've been, you know, very lit that I feel very connected as well. And, And just like when you first start, you know, using hash or cannabis, you start, it really starts opening up your mind. I think that's the biggest thing is it just kind of opens you up to be more open to other ideas and and really think about things on a deeper level. So it makes sense that Alistair would be using hash, right? Yeah, using it as a tool. Absolutely. In the fall of 1907, he heard the voice of the messenger Iwas. And this time, Iwas gave him the liturgy that would become the holy books of Thelema. Through the end of 1907, the messenger also dictated several other texts as well. And I'm not even going to pretend like I can pronounce these because they're, they're written. I don't know if that's Latin or what that is, but there's a number of other texts that he, he claims this messenger Iowas dictated to him. And they're all books that I believe you can still buy today. But by the summer of 1909, Alistair declared that Thelema was objective truth. But before that, Alistair started using his magic to support his family. He was running out of his inheritance from his father and caught a break when he was hired by George Bennett, the Earl of Tankerville, to use magic as a protection against witchcraft. After that, Alistair started teaching magic, as well as the occult, to paying students. One of these students was Victor Newberg. Victor and Alistair started the sexual relationship at some point and ended up traveling together. While staying at Boleskine, Alistair's home in Scotland, they experimented with sadomasochism. Alistair continued to write, publishing poems and short horror stories, which sold quite well. A collection of his papers on magic, mysticism, and the occult were published in a book called Liber 777. In the fall of 1909, Victor and Alistair founded AA in London, a new occult order modeled after the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. AA stood for a Latin phrase that means silver star. AA combined beliefs and rituals from Theravada Buddhism. Vedantic, yoga, and ceremonial magic. And the purpose of AA is the advancement of humanity by perfection of the individual on every plane. It's structured around the tree of life, which is a map of the universe and the psyche, the order of the creation of the cosmos, and a path to spiritual illumination. They called the teachings scientific illuminism, a way to reach enlightenment. And in the spring of 1909, Alistair launched the Equinox, the Review of Scientific Illuminism, which was a biannual publication featuring articles on occultism, mysticism, and magic, along with works of fiction, artwork, and biographies. Meanwhile, Rose's alcoholism had gotten much worse, and Alistair divorced her in November of 1909. In his divorce, he actually listed his own adultery as the reason. But in September of 1911, she was institutionalized for neurological damage from all of the alcoholism. Alistair really moved on after that. And him and Victor traveled to Algeria on a trip that lasted until January of 1910. And during this particular trip, Alistair Crowley studied the Quran every day. They performed ceremonies using Enochian magic, which is used to call and command spirits. 
One day they hiked a mountain to perform a sex magic ritual and used a blood sacrifice to call the demon Cornazon. Alistair believed this demon was the obstacle to overcome before reaching enlightenment. Apparently this demon is conjured and used to destroy the ego or conscious awareness. And the ritual was a success and was a huge turning point for Alistair. And it was after this ritual that he became deeply committed to Thelema. After this, they returned to London. Alistair got distracted by a lawsuit filed by Samuel Mathers, claiming he had published secrets of the Golden Dawn in the Equinox. Alistair ended up winning this lawsuit, though. But unfortunately, the media really did him no good. They made him look like he was this crazy Satanist who believed in human sacrifice. But this didn't bother him. He enjoyed this attention. Even though the reports were false, it allowed him to gain more followers as a result, including several prominent figures of the time. One of them was Australian violinist Layla Waddell, who had a sexual relationship with Alistair. And to capitalize on the media coverage, Alistair created the Rites of Artemis. And this was a public performance that demonstrated magic while the performers played the parts of deities. And during performances, audience members were given fruit punch with peyote. Man, I bet that was a fun time. And the media attended and they praised the show. <laughs> that must have been so wild, man. Oh, I know, right? See everybody tripping on peyote. Which if you don't know what peyote is, it's a, basically a cactus that contains a uh, psychoactive ca- compound that makes you trip. I've never done peyote before, but from what I've heard about it, it sounds like a, a good time. So it's like a psychedelic experience, basically? Yeah, okay, absolutely a psychedelic drug. But unfortunately, Alistair did another performance called Rites of Eleusis that wasn't received as well. The editor of the Looking Glass newspaper said Alistair was one of the most blasphemous and cold-blooded villains of modern times and accused him and George Cecil Jones of being sexually involved. But this didn't phase Alistair because George sued for libel and lost. Alistair took Victor back to Algeria after all this, hoping to recreate the transformative experiences from the first trip. In 1911, Alistair went with violinist Layla Waddell to France and wrote 19 works on magic, including the final two holy books of Thelema. He also met Mary Dessetti, one of the Scarlet Women, and Alistair believed that while she was in a trance, the secret chief Abuldis was communicating with him through her, which secret chiefs are spiritual authorities who control the cosmos. While Mary was in a trance, Alistair wrote down what she said, aiding him in writing the two-volume book, Four, of Magic, the final part of the series. The number of books this guy wrote, or channeled, really, is pretty amazing. The four parts of Magic are considered his greatest work and most important contribution to Thelema. But unfortunately, Alistair was accused of publishing secrets once again in 1912, in his work titled The Book of Lies, which was a fusion of poetry and mysticism. Theodore Roos accused Alistair of revealing secrets from the Ordo Templa Orientis. But Alistair used his charisma and charm to win over Theodore, who then appointed him to head of the Mysteria Mystica Maxima, which was the British branch of the Ordo Templa Orientis. Alistair chose the magical name Baphomet after the pagan deity, And during the ceremony, he was named X, Supreme Rex and Sovereign Grandmaster, General of Ireland, Iona, and all of the Britons. Which, this was great for him. He's like, hell yeah. 
So we started promoting the group right away and revising many of the teachings and practices, adding in Thelema principles. The OTO leaned into sex magic, which made Alistair very happy. So we added a ritual involving anal sex to the syllabus for members who reached a certain level in the organization. In early 1914, Victor and Alistair moved into an apartment together in Paris, and for six weeks they devoted themselves to performing intense sexual and drug-fueled rituals. This was called the Paris Working, and Alistair believed it was very successful. He documented everything and wrote an essay on sex magic called Liber Agape. Victor was apparently less enthused, and he grew distant and moved away from Alistair. And when Alistair confronted him about it, they got into a fight. So Alistair put a curse on him. And that year, Alistair moved to the United States and made money writing for the Vanity Fair of all fucking magazines and doing freelance work for an astrologer. He felt Americans were obsessed with consumerism and just lusted for money. Alistair continued practicing sex magic using masturbation, sex workers, and men who were clients at a Turkish bathhouse. And he always kept detailed records of all of his rituals and sexual experiences. And after aligning with Germany in their war against Britain in 1915, Alistair started working for a propagandist paper called The Fatherland, run by a German spy with a mission to keep the U.S. out of the war. But Alistair was secretly working for the British government in order to infiltrate the paper and undermine its mission. Literally a spy, like out of all things, this guy did. Alistair started meeting with the American members of the Order Temple Orientis about bringing Thelema to the U.S., And until mid-1919, he traveled all over the country practicing rituals, writing, and experimenting with sex magic, and taking multiple magical retreats to hone his skills. While he was staying with a woman named Roddy Minor, one of his scarlet women, they summoned an entity named Lam or Lam. And he called these rituals the Amalantra Workings. This picture of Lamb really reminds me of like a gray alien or something. Yeah, this is an actual illustration that Alistair did of this entity named Lamb or Lam. And I agree with you. It does look very much like a gray alien, which makes you think like, huh? It does. Some people believe that literally gray aliens are demons, like they are some type of demonic entity but we just perceive it as an alien when in fact they are demons, (laughs) which that's a, that's a frightening thing to think about on the flip side though. It makes me wonder if Alistair was actually through these magic practices of his and meditation and, and all the things that he did. Was he in fact just communicating with, you know, either an interdimensional entity or an extraterrestrial being of some sort, or maybe it was really just a, just a demon he was dealing with i mean it's really hard to say but i I do find it interesting that the there's definitely some similarities between his illustration of lamb and the great alien but after all this he ended up returning to england in 1920 where he was heavily criticized for helping the german war effort only his close friends knew he had been working as a double agent around this time a doctor prescribed him heroin to treat his asthma what that to me is like <laughs> can you imagine if like you went to the doctor these yeah. days and they're like all right i i know you want an inhaler but in fact 
you need to do this heroin. Like that doesn't even but, make any sense. Yeah, it does make sense because too much heroin will literally make you stop breathing. So <laughs> it's like, what? You know what I think? I think this doctor is trying to fucking kill him. Yeah, I could see I, that. I think this could have even been a planned thing that the doctor did. And unfortunately he fell for it. But I think probably the more likely scenario is that this doctor was just like, we need to kill him. Or maybe he was an agent for all we know. But because of this prescription, for heroin he became addicted to the drug after staying for a short time in paris he went to sicily italy to start the abbey of thelema a commune for thelemites this commune opened in april 1920 and alistair spent his days performing rituals painting and revising the thelema texts followers came from all over to live at the commune bringing their families and children along with them Alistair continued to emphasize sex magic in his teachings and allowed everyone, even children, to watch sex magic rituals. And some of these rituals were basically public orgies. No one at the commune was in charge of cleaning or maintenance, so the filth quickly started to pile up. Alistair set up a room in the house called the Nightmare Room, where he painted horrifying images. And people at the commune were encouraged to stare at these images until they lost all fear of anything. And I believe drugs were involved with this as well. Because, I mean, at this point, Alistair was now addicted to heroin and cocaine. He tried to get off drugs in 1922 at a retreat in Paris, but it did not work. While he was in Italy, Alistair fathered a daughter named Louise Shumway. And Louise's mother was Augustine Frock's Shumway, a.k.a. Isabella Frock. And she was raised in the U.S. by her aunt from age 10. And she was kept from the public until she died in 2014 at the age of 93. But rumors about what went on in the commune spread, and the rituals allegedly escalated to including bestiality and animal sacrifice. It's very disturbing. A woman named Betty May claimed to have witnessed some disturbing things at the commune. She moved there with her husband, Raoul Loveday. She hated the commune as much as she hated Alistair. Betty said her husband was forced to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat and water from the polluted stream. And every time they used the word I... Betty said they had to cut themselves with razors as punishment. After drinking from the stream one time, Raoul got a liver infection and died. And after this, Betty went back to London and spilled the beans to the media about the life that people were living at the commune, as well as about the leader, the great beast, Alistair Crowley. And the story spread far and fast, and it did not take long before Alistair was called the wickedest man in the world and a man we'd like to hang. And because of all the media attention, Alistair was forced to leave Italy in April of 1923, and the commune closed. Residents of the neighborhood claim the abandoned grounds of the commune are now haunted by demons to this day. Soon after he left, he started working on his autobiography, The Confessions of Alistair Crowley. In 1924, he wrote Two Man, where he proclaimed that he was a prophet who brought Thelema to humanity. He also wrote The Heart of the Master, a detailed account of one of his visions. When Theodore Roos, the leader of Ordo Templa Orientis, died, Alistair claimed he had been named his successor, but the leader of the German, OTO, didn't believe it, and members ended up taking sides and the organization became split. Plus, at this point in his life, his drug addiction had taken a major toll on him, as you can imagine, with cocaine and heroin, and his health was deteriorating very quickly. In 1928, he met a Nicaraguan woman named Maria Teresa Sanchez, 
who he married the following year. And Alistair and Maria moved to Berlin in 1930, and it was there that he met 19-year-old Haney Jaeger and took her on as his magical partner. Haney and Alistair went to Portugal that September, but he soon grew tired of her. He then met a Portuguese poet named Fernando Pessoa and they became fast friends. Alistair and Fernando devised a plan for him to fake his own death to get away from Haney. So Alistair pretended to commit suicide by jumping from a cliff. He even wrote a suicide note to Haney and said, The other Boca do Inferno, or Mouth of Hell, will get me. It will not be as hot as yours. And Fernando went along with the plan enthusiastically and even claimed to see Alistair's ghost the day after he supposedly died. Three weeks later, Alistair appeared in an art exhibit in Berlin alive and well. And by 1932, Alistair was running low on funds, so he started suing people for libel. And at first it worked, and he won a few cases. But he lost his case against a prominent publisher who published a book calling his practice Black Magic. He was in even more financial trouble than before and went bankrupt in 1935. And during the bankruptcy hearing, it came out that for the past three years, Alistair had been spending three times his income. In 1936, a young woman named Deidre Patricia McLellan offered to let Alistair impregnate her, and he accepted. She was an admirer of his work and follower of his philosophies and religious movement. Deidre also helped Alistair get off drugs and nursed him back to health. Eventually, she became pregnant and had their son, Randall Gare, a.k.a. Alistair Ataturk, who was born in May of 1937. And Alistair adored his son, and it felt like he finally found true happiness with his new family. After a friend told Alistair she thought Hitler might convert to Thelema, he started paying close attention to the rise of Nazism. But after Hitler dismantled the German Ordo Templa Orientis, Alistair condemned him as a black magician, a person who practices magic for evil. And during World War II, Alistair tried to offer his services to the Naval Intelligence Division of Britain, but was turned away. He literally wanted to help fight against Hitler because he felt like he was literally trying to do, you know, use magic for evil. That's why he wanted to join OTO. Very interesting. He did his part to support the war effort by publishing Lieber Oz, a declaration of man's most basic and intrinsic rights, and a poem calling for the liberation of France. Alistair also planned to produce a tarot card set and wrote a book of poetry called Ola, an anthology of 60 years of song which was the last thing published while he was still alive. On December 1st, 1947, the wild, wacky life of Aleister Crowley came to an end in East Sussex, England, when he died of chronic bronchitis when he was 72 years old. Deidre was by his side, and she claimed that at the moment of his death, thunder struck as the gods came to reclaim his soul. At his funeral, only a dozen people attended, and it was labeled a black mass by tabloids. While he was alive, all of this work that he had done over his life, all these books that he wrote or, or channeled, were largely ignored. He hardly sold any. But after his death, his work has been very widely published and studied. And even today, there's thousands and thousands of followers of Thelema. And people that still follow his principles, and his texts very closely, which I find very interesting. In 1954, a series of letters was published that he had titled, Alistair Explains Everything. 
It was renamed Magic Without Tears, and many believe this work is proof that Alistair was as sharp as ever up until his death. The book offers clarity about how Alistair viewed Thelema and that Alistair viewed himself as a prophet of a new age called the Aeon of Horus. His work in the occult has influenced art, music, and poetry, and has served as a foundation for modern Satanism and chaos magic, which involves using any form of magic that will yield the desired results. Alistair Crowley has also influenced modern paganism, and some even believe that L. Ron Hubbard was once a follower of Thelema, and that they knew each other, and that L. Ron Hubbard used aspects of his religious movement when founding Scientology. Prominent scholars and philosophers have called Alistair a modern master. Quote, the most notorious occultist magician of the 20th century and one of the most well-known figures in modern occultism, as well as a pioneer of consciousness research. He's remembered most for representing the dark side of the occult, but he's also been credited for helping bring the study of yoga to the West. I mean, he did travel the world, so... He obviously picked up some knowledge from all of his travels and brought it with him wherever he went. Two biographers, Richard B. Spence and Tobias Churton, believe that Alistair could have been a British spy who joined the Golden Dawn to gather information about their leader, Samuel Mathers. And if he was a spy, which we don't know for sure, then perhaps he may have gone to all these countries, Mexico, China, Russia, in order to gather intelligence and monitor foreign governments. How crazy would that be if we all, if he really fooled all of us and the whole time, all this other stuff was just kind of like a cover story for him. And in fact, he's just like this top secret. He's like a James Bond magician. Like he's just literally fooling all of us, you know, gathering intel for these government agencies. And we're thinking he's just a, you know, this crazy, you know, crazy guy that's coming up with all these spiritual and religious material. Like that'd be really crazy. I mean, we don't, we don't know for sure, but yeah, I was going to say Definitely that's a, a thought. very impressive cover story, though. To yeah, seriously. And this way was all, too much effort, yeah, yeah, too. Seriously. Like, holy shit. Yeah, to like invent the whole religious movement, Thelema and all this other stuff. And yeah. say you were contacted by Iwas and all these entities and conjuring demons. Yeah. That's super extreme, you know? And I feel like if you were a spot, like, why would you want such a crazy story? It's going to draw attention to yourself. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. But there was many people that were inspired after Aleister Crowley was gone. And even up before his death, he was already inspiring artists across Britain. And several prominent characters were based on him, known as literary Crowleys. Aleister has also been credited for inspiring the free love movement of the 1960s, as well as many modern-day musicians. His image even appears on the cover of the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1967. That to me is one of the most interesting things. I don't think a lot of people even know that. If you're a Beatles, you know, if you're a fan of the Beatles or you know anything about them, I, I find it very interesting that they put him on one of their album covers. I really do. Yeah. Considering like how controversial his history is, and I mean, he did definitely a lot of very questionable things and maybe even some fucked up shit too along the way. And they still put him on the cover. The Beatles right. of all the bands. Like because Beatles obviously were big back in the day. Yeah. So I mean legendary I yeah mean, legendary. like one of the most legendary rock bands of all time and the fact that they had him on that cover is very interesting it's like, kind of risky you know definitely like, but it makes me think you know i mean we all know the beatles are some deep or some deep dudes especially for the time and yeah i think so much of alistair crowley's history too is is drugs and especially psychedelic drugs and experimenting with 
with drugs to try and achieve higher levels of consciousness and spirituality. And I think a lot of people resonate with him because of that and kind of followed that path, I guess you could say. So it would make sense that the Beatles, you know, do that. Yeah. Because they're very yeah. much into that at some points in their life. And his motto, do what thou wilt, was inscribed on the vinyl of the 1970 album Led Zeppelin Three. Another big name right there. Yeah, Led Zeppelin. In fact, in 1971, Led Zeppelin's co-founder and guitarist Jimmy Page actually bought Alistair's house in Scotland on the shore of Loch Ness. And parts of their 1976 concert film were shot there. And what's interesting is that Jimmy Page said that after he bought the house, he said the amount of paranormal activity at that house was just <laughs> out the ass, man. Like he, he literally said the house was haunted by demons unleashed oh, by alistair how crazy is right that? he's summoning all sorts of stuff he there. was doing some wild shit man yeah david bowie's hit song let's dance is based on one of alistair's poems even ozzy osbourne wrote a song called mr crowley and it was actually ranked the 23rd greatest heavy metal song of all time by gibson pole but it really took up until the late 1990s for alistair's work to get any serious attention from the academic world the last edition of the equinox Alistair's biannual publication was printed in 1998. So after all this and all of this work that he did, some people remember Alistair as an eccentric genius, while others believe he was literally the Antichrist, the one prophesied in the book of Revelation in the Bible to oppose Christ at the end of the world. Like they literally think he is the most wickedest man of all time. And to me, it seems like he's the most misunderstood man of all time. Did he do some fucked up shit? Sure. But did he have some very interesting ideals? Absolutely. Did he probably know some shit? Absolutely. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Alistair was a living embodiment of his belief system and a true follower of Thelema. I'll leave you with a final quote from Alistair. He said, we must conquer life by living it to the full and then we can go to meet death with a certain prestige i like that i like that i I like the i like what thelema puts forward for a a philosophy to follow in life i like all of that i like that it's do what you want to do not what you know not what you're being told not what religion tells you to do follow what you truly believe you should be doing in life because that's what it's all about and that's exactly what he did he did not live life by anybody else's norms not society's norms not religion's norms he did what he wanted to do and he believed that he reached levels of enlightenment that many people don't ever get to and you know he had clearly had psychic abilities he had abilities to channel entities spirits demons whatever you want to call it i mean whether or not he actually did any of that things i mean there's no way to confirm you know that any of this happened to him as far as the you know connecting with these entities iwas and lam and all these different demons that he conjured but i mean jimmy page bought his house moved in so it was like one of the most paranormal spots <laughs> I, I believe it i mean so and alistair crowley's enlightenment like reminds me a lot about uh, nikola tesla and how he was able to you know, channel, I don't know the exact term for it. I think you know yeah. what I'm talking about, but like something otherworldly, something that yeah, is not exactly. this, this plane of existence. And, and that's a great point. I'm glad you brought Nikola Tesla in this because 
I do think he was in that same realm. I think there's certain people that grace this planet that have this innate ability to connect to something higher than themselves and, and yeah. in such a way that allows them to gather information from some otherworldly entity, whether it's, you know, I mean, to a Christian, that would be an angel or a demon to a non-religious person that could just be, you know, some trans-dimensional being of, you know, or just somebody that's crazy. I mean, yeah. it, it could be interpreted a lot of different ways, but I do think there are some people that are just kind of these geniuses and sometimes they're geniuses for good and sometimes they're geniuses for for evil or or for darkness. And I think that he was very torn between the two and you know, he was trying to find his way throughout his whole life that he saw was the best way for him to reach the ultimate spiritual enlightenment he was looking for. I mean, you have to remember like where he came from. He literally came from an evangelical Christian home. Yep. And he, like us, we got to the point where we're like, okay, this is not for us. And, you know, I see a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of, see a lot of things that I don't like. And, you know, I, I want to know why I'm being shut off from all these other things. The church is telling me these are dangerous. These are dark. These are things I should not dive into. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, why shouldn't you go and find out for yourself? Exactly. It's hard to take that as an answer when you haven't experienced it for yourself and, you know, see what you really think about right. it type of thing. Right. So, and I mean, yeah, you can believe the Bible all day if you want to, but the minute that you look at the Bible and you compare it to any other text that's out there, any other sort of religious text, I mean, you could compare it to the book of the law even. I mean, it's virtually, you know, kind of in the same category. And so I think once you get to that point, it, you, you look at everything else as like, this is all knowledge that I, I need to, to gather and then I can make my own decision on what do I believe? What do I find interesting? What resonates with you, right? Mm-hmm. Like for me personally, I feel like everybody should be on their own journey. And obviously you want to introduce your you know family and your children to things that you think are good for you and good for your soul or whatever. But at the end of the day, we're all on this journey in life. We're all here to try to discover, you know, enlightenment and discover what, what works for you, what resonates in your life, what makes you feel like you're living a better life or make you feel better about the things that you're doing, the work that you're producing. And for Alistair, it was, you know, a lot of craziness, but at the end of the day, I think he did derive a lot of wisdom. I think there's a lot of wisdom in the ancient texts. I think the Egyptians absolutely knew some shit that was way beyond any of our comprehension. I think so many of these ancient cultures knew way more about just the nature of everything, the universe, you know, other dimensions, angels and demons either, either, you know, yeah, even, exactly. even angels and demons. I mean like, and angels and demons is just a term coined for something that we don't understand. You know, mm-hmm. nobody can prove that angels or demons exist, but it's interesting that all these different cultures and religions all experience positive and negative entities. So at the end of the day, it does seem like there might be something there, right? Yeah. And you know, just the same way that if you believe in magic, there's probably a white magic and black magic. One is positive. One is negative. So it makes sense. So a lot of people say Alistair was a very much in the dark magic and maybe he was, but when it's all said and done, I think, Thelema and a lot of the philosophical ideas that he put forward are definitely interesting and could definitely be applied to your life. So with that, I'll leave it there. Hopefully you found this episode interesting. 
maybe you're sitting here completely lost. <laughs> you're like, what the hell did I just listen to? There's a lot of information. So it's very different. I mean, he's there's so much packed into this that to to explain his life accurately, and I probably even miss some things that are not in here because there's just so much with him. I mean, he's truly a very fascinating individual. You know, was he the most wickedest man in the world? Maybe to some. I think it was perception. I think depending on what you believe and how you perceive the things that he did, I think, yeah, he could in fact be very wicked. But in other respects, he could be just a very misunderstood guy that, you know, maybe did some some bad things, made some mistakes just like we all do. And, you know, a lot of the truly, you know, golden nuggets per se. Yeah. Get get kind of left behind. So I don't know. This was kind of a, a interesting intro into the occult, truly the occult. And I'm interested to know if, you know, if there's any other topics out there under this occult umbrella and like, this isn't necessarily like a typical lights out dark evil episode. And I want to know what your thoughts are on covering things that aren't necessarily just like death, destruction, evil. Cause for me, like I need to switch it up once in a while. Cause like, yeah, it, it, it honestly can get depressing every week talking about <laughs> just it can, horrible yeah. horrible fucking things and i kind of like diving into some of this philosophical stuff and it, it really does truly interest me and i'm very interested in many of these paths of the occult and i think i have a good perspective especially coming from a, a religious upbringing so interested to know your thoughts and opinions make sure you are subscribed to us on apple podcasts especially if you're only watching us on youtube Go please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please. Yeah, we really do appreciate it. It does help us out. Leave us a rating or review. We do appreciate reading what you guys think. We love the comments. But until next time, guys. Lights out. Everybody.